Father, we thank you for this time together. We ask that you be with us yet again as we go through your word. We thank you for the bold proclamation that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for us. And we pray that that would be the case again this morning as we look at Leviticus 25. We pray that our hearts and minds would be open to what your word has to say, that we would rightly understand it and apply it. We thank you for the gift that we have in Christ. We pray that our appreciation and thankfulness for what he's done for us will grow a little bit more this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, We are in Leviticus 25, verse 23. We're going to start in 23. And last week we talked about the first section of chapter 25, the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee. Just by way of review, what was that all about, if you're Canadian? What was that all about? What's a Sabbath year? What is it relating to? Resting, a year of rest of what? Of the land. So there's a year, where, what, what was involved with that? Why would they do that? Because God said to. Okay, because God said to. Always a good answer. Jesus. Another excellent answer in Sunday school. Good stewardship of the resources and land that they, that they had in the family. So it dealt with stewardship. Why, why do we call it stewardship? They own the land, right? Who owns everything? Who owns it? God. God owns it. They're stewards of the land, and He determines how the land is cultivated, right? And so you have... A command by God to say that that every seventh year the land was to remain fallow and they were to, as people, to do what? What were they to do? Not work. Not to work? To rest? uh, To allow the land to just grow stuff? And they were to not systematically cultivate it. They weren't to systematically harvest. They were just to kind of glean from whatever grew up naturally. Then we talked about Jubilee. What was that all about? I'm trying to go back to American. <laughs> I'm talking Texan now. 49th year, you're supposed to do the same thing. 49th year to do the same thing with land. What happened with ownership of land? Do we have any issues there? Return to the previous, the original owner. If people got into debt, sometimes they would sell part of the land, or if it got real bad, they'd sell all their land. And in the 50th year, all of that reverted back because all they were doing was selling a lease, not ownership. Because who owned it? God owned it, right? So you had 50-year leases at the most. Did we also talk about year of Jubilee, other things? What else returned back to the person? Their own person returned to the person, right? If they're in debt and it gets really bad, they can sell themselves into servitude. And after, in the year of Jubilee, if they sell themselves for two years, that year, yay, I'm free. Debt's paid off. Uh, if they sell themselves in the 40 or the 51st year and it starts the clock again, nuts, right? So that's kind of the way that worked. But it reverted back. There was a year of Jubilee there. All right, in, verse, in verses 23 through 55, um, we have an explanation of how redemption and jubilee worked for those who were forced to sell their property or themselves because of poverty. Generally, there are three levels of 
poverty that were in view here. We talked about them a little bit already. You have situations where, I guess it best be described in, in terms of, of crops, because that's kind of what they're dealing with. You have a crop, and it fails, okay? And in order, and you, don't, and you have nothing to sell, you have nothing to eat on, so you borrow money. And you buy seed with that money, and you do another crop, and it also fails. Say it's a rough patch with the weather. You know, we had five-year drought in Texas. Now we have five-year flooding in Texas, apparently. I don't know what the deal is. But you have a situation where it fails again. They, in order to pay off the debt for the seed that they bought before, or that they, the money they borrowed to get the seed before, they may sell part of their land, right? And then buy seed, pay off part of the debt, go again. It fails again. Now they have lot borrowed, no money, no reserves, and so they borrow again or they sell all of their land to pay off the debt and buy, you know, food for themselves. <clears throat> Plant some more crops somewhere, work, whatever they got to do, and it fails again. If the debt's really high, they may have to sell themselves into slavery, servitude. English translation says slavery. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, to, to pay off the debt to, um, to, to, and also to have a place to work and eat, right? So it deals with these three levels of poverty in Israel. And how are they to, how are they to deal with that? Um, in verse 23, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. What we guessed at before is clearly stated here, God owns the land, right? The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. When we talk about redemption, what are we talking about? When you hear the word redemption, what do you generally think of? Returning back or made new. Restoration. Restoration, returning back, made new. In terms of what? And we have kind of a clear context here. The way it's supposed to be. The way it's supposed to be. It's a reset button, not like a Hillary Clinton and Russia thing, but it is a reset button getting back to the way things should be. Anyway, we'll, yeah. Um, it derives, when we talk about redemption here, it derives from the Hebrew verb that, that means basically uh, to redeem, avenge, revenge, ransom, and do the part of a kinsman. That's all the uses that we see with this word. Uh, in this section, the person in need of redemption has sold either his land or himself to another person. And then we see the remaining part of the chapter, explanations of how that, uh, how that redemption is to work in different things. All right. Um, let's, let's start at verse uh, 25. First of all, um, can they apply these laws at the time they're being given? They don't have land. They're in the desert. So this stuff is not applicable now, right? Um, what's implicit in the whole line of discussion here? Just let's rehash this again. God's going to fulfill His promise to give them land. God's promised them land. When you get to the land, this is the way... The economy is going to work. Um, 
he's giving them land. Where did he, where, why are they in need of land? Where have they come from? Egypt. What's going on in Egypt? What went on there? They had nothing. They had nothing. They had no land. They had no person. They were chattel slaves. They were property, right? They had a master who was called Pharaoh, God of the Egyptians, and they were redeemed through signs and wonders, and you see all the, how that's recounted here. They were redeemed by Yahweh, and just let loose? With a plan. What's their, what's their position now after he has redeemed them? He is their God. He's their God. He's their king. And they still don't have anything. They still don't have anything. There's a promise, though. He's providing everything. The way away from Egypt, the place, the rules. He's providing everything away from Egypt. Here's go here. The rules and the laws that a king would do. He's a good master. He's a good master. And that's what undergirds this entire passage. They're not just set loose willy-nilly. Hey, if you want to come follow me, use your free will and do it. Uh, just leave that there. He is their master. And they are his servants and they're his permanent servants right all right let's look at uh, let's look at verse 25 if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold if a man has no one to redeem it and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem, uh, to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and, then to return it, and then return to his property. But if he has not sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee it shall be released, and he shall return to his property." If a man sells a dwelling house in a walled city, he may redeem it within a year of its sale. For a full year, he shall have the right of redemption. If it is not redeemed within a full year, then the house in the walled city shall belong in perpetuity to the buyer throughout his generations. It shall not be released in the Jubilee. But the houses of the villages that have no wall around them shall be classified with the fields of the land. They may be redeemed, and they shall be released in the Jubilee. As for the cities of the Levites, the Levites may redeem at any time the houses in the cities they possess. And if one of the Levites exercises his right of redemption, then the house that was sold in the city they possess shall be released in the Jubilee. For the houses in the cities of the Levites are their possession among the people of Israel. But the fields of pasture land belonging to their cities may not be sold for that is their possession forever. Let's stop right there. Redemption provides the original landowner a method of getting the land back that does not involve waiting for the jubilee. That's where we are. And so what's the first circumstance that's referenced here? What happens? Guy does what? He subdivides and sells. Okay, he subdivides. Nice modern way of putting it. 
He becomes poor, and he has land surveyed, partial acreage to sell off, right? He becomes poor. That language, becomes poor, here, it's a rare verb, meaning impoverished through unavoidable circumstances. It's a very compassionate way of saying that. It does also include circumstances that were very much avoidable, but the term is kind, right? I mean, it doesn't really say only if it's unavoidable can he redeem it. He can redeem it at any time, even if he does something stupid. Um, but it's a very compassionate way, and that sets the tone, really, how they're to view debtors in Israel, how they're to view people who become economically strapped. Um, other ways that a person could become poor uh, it, from laziness, natural causes, we talked about the weather patterns, sickness or old age. And what's the first way that's mentioned here that the land can be restored? What, what does it say? A kinsman redeemer. And what is a kinsman redeemer? The closest relative you have. The closest relative you have. It's listed here as brother or uncle or cousin or whatever. Uh, and it can go on to other... If you, uh, We've just gone through Ruth recently in, in, uh, in church, uh, the main service. Does that have anything to do with this? I just, I'm curious. That's all about that, right? That's the whole motif of the thing. Um, the, the Hebrew term, if you want to use it at your next party, I, I believe, correct me, is goel, right? Go, go, hell. I don't know. Go hell. Is that some kind of in there somewhere? There's not. What is the term? Is am I saying it right? No, I'm not. You don't know. You don't know. You don't have this. I just. I'm amazed. Not to put you on the spot or anything, I'm just kidding. Is it, am I, am it, is it, it's G-O, little line above A-E-L, is what I saw, and I don't know how to pronounce it. The, guys, the Hebrew scholars in here is Goel. See, that reminds me of the father in Superman, but that's Jor-El. Anyways, but, anyway, so, Jor-El. All right, so you have Goel here is the term, and it's used everywhere for this idea of a guy, a person, uh, who is a relative, that has specific duties, and there are three of them. Three, I'm going to do three. Three of them. They are buy back a kin out of bondage or slavery, buy back land sold by his relative, or avenge the blood of his family. Those are the three duties you see of a kinsman redeemer. I don't know Cousin Charlie, but he got you know, murdered. It's now my duty to go avenge his blood, whether that means chasing him to a city of refuge, which we'll talk about when we get to Numbers Deuteronomy, or just making sure that the courts are properly, you know, handling the situation. That's the duty. You got three of them. Is there another way, other than kinsman redeemer, that the land can be restored? What's that? He himself, he himself can buy it back. And how would he do that? He pulls himself up by his bootstraps. He becomes prosperous, it says. There's a, he finds sufficient means. And literally, the language there means his hand has reached and found enough, either through work or business. He gets enough money to buy it back. And how, and, and, and how do they value it? I mean, it's, it's, not, it, it, it's spelled out there how to value this. Years since he sold it. Years since he sold it until when? Till Jubilee. So everything is calculated off of, I'm going to get it back anyway. you got 20 years left on the lease. 
will value it at 20 years. All right. What if he has no close relative and cannot buy it back himself? What happens? Wait until the year of Jubilee. Wait until the year of Jubilee. Who's his kinsman redeemer then? Jesus. Always a good answer in Sunday school, but more technically, what do we say here? Yahweh. Yahweh is his... Oh, wow. Is his... I just opened something I did not mean to. <laughs> Yahweh is his kinsman redeemer. Um, so... Uh, Yahweh carries out the redemption and returns the land to the original owners. So what's the deal with a walled, a, a house in a walled village, a walled city? What, what, what's going on here? Why would this even be an issue? Can it be redeemed? Yes. If you sell it? Yes. How? Within what? one year. You got a one-year statute of limitations of redemption. It also is not returned on Jubilee. And it's not returned. Why? What's the deal with that? Why? Because swapping houses every 50 years is a pain. Because God doesn't want people flipping houses. That's what he's... That's a, is that what we're talking about? No house flipping. <laughs> no, there goes my... The fields are the inheritance from the, the tribes and stuff, but... When you build a city up, everybody's just kind of there together. Right? It's it's related to the fee. What's the basic agri, What's the basic economic produce here? It's food yeah. off the land, and the, and the way to make money in an agrarian society is keyed to the land. And so, a house in a city is considered to be more of an individual property, whereas the property that's land and fields is more communal. This is clan. Uh, Fam I was going to say clan business, but that has a whole other connotation. This is, a, this is a family, clan, tribal kind of thing going on here. Um, so if great-granddad screws everything up, we can get a land back, but we can't get a house. But we can't get a house in the city, yeah. So that's, unless he redeems it within a year. So you have that. It, is there an exception to this rule, this house in the city rule? Yes. What's the exception? Levitical. If you're a Levite. Why? Because they're, they're the best. <laughs> they're set aside they, for God. They they're set aside. Wouldn't they be dwelling already in the walled city? Because that's where the temple they don't, they, don't they, don't they, don't they don't have land. What do they have? What is their inheritance? What does it say when we, we did all this? What did you say? The temple work. The temple work. <laughs> they inherit work. <laughs> he says the Lord is their inheritance. Right? And he gives them cities, and there are pasture lands around the city that none of them own individually, and they're not owned by families, owned by the tribe, and so they're communal, communal pasture land outside the city. They, that's all they've got is those cities. It's like 18 or something like that, 40. I don't remember how many it is. They've got these cities that they can live in that, that, that are theirs that, that have the right of redemption if they get into financial straits on these houses that are within the walled city. They also have uh, Jubilee redemption if they are uh, in the city. It's a distinction made um, um, for the Levites only. All right. What happens if they sell all of the property? Look at verse 35. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, 
You shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. What's the, uh, what's the situation here? Obviously, he's in more um, economic straits. Uh, the, the cannot maintain himself, another translation may say his hand shakes. That's hard times, right? He's, he's unable to support himself economically, and this is a, di- a deeper indebtedness than, than from above. How are they to treat this guy? How are they to treat this fellow Israelite who's fallen to this so, so much tightly wound that his hand is shaking, he can't provide for himself? There's to help him and treat him how? As a sojourner, what does that mean? How were they treating resident aliens in Israel? As almost as a native. There were a couple of things they couldn't do. But they were to treat them kindly, compassionately, as a human being and not as chattel. Um, they were to support him as though he was a sojourner. Uh, they were to take no interest from him, but fear God, that your brother may live beside you. Sojourners are well protected in the land, and, and we've seen that already. The debtor like a sojourner, is not to be an outcast. He is to remain a member of the community. Uh, there's no interest, no profit that can be taken from him. The idea here is they're not to take a bite out of the poor. That's the language that's being used there. And this is unique in the ancient Near East. Uh, usury was allowed in all the other cultures with some restrictions, but not in Israel, not against a fellow Israelite. Why is it to be this way in Israel? What's the point of that? It all comes back to what he's done, how he has revealed himself to them as redeemer, merciful, um, to, to buy them out of bondage, to buy them out of slavery, and they are to mirror that. The laws of redemption and mercy are established because they, the Israelites, are a people who are redeemed and have, had, and have received mercy. All right, now we get to the sticky stuff. Redeeming the sale of one's self. Look at verse 39. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired servant and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. As for your male and female slaves, whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you, You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you, who have been born in your land, and they may be your property. 
You may bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich, and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you, or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him. Or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. He shall calculate with his buyer from the year when he sold himself to him until the year of Jubilee, and the price of his sale shall vary with the number of years. The time he was with his owner shall be rated as the time of a hired servant. If there are still many years left, he shall pay proportionately for his redemption some of his sale price. If there remain but a few years until the year of Jubilee, he shall calculate and pay for his redemption in proportion to his years of service. He shall treat him as a servant hired year by year. He shall not rule ruthlessly over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed by these means, then he and his children with him shall be released in the year of Jubilee. For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. What do you do with this? Is slavery condoned by God? Probably not in the sense that we think about it. And why do you say that? Because everywhere it mentions it, it's um, you are not to treat them unfairly. You are to treat them as high servants. You are to, you know, people are, are selling themselves into slavery because they have need of it. They, have, they are poor and have to work. And so you're paying for a worker. Okay. Okay. So here we have the most destitute of situations. A guy has nothing. And so he sells himself into service to try to buy back his future. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, he can sell himself to another Hebrew or another resident or, or to a resident alien. Right. Those are the two options. And, and you say, how is he to be treated? As a hired servant. As a hired servant. What does that mean? It's an employee. As an property. It's not property. Why do you say that? Because he's not hired. I'm sorry, I got three answers. What? What did you say? Uh, he, because he goes back. Because he can go back. He's not yours to mistreat. He's not yours to mistreat. He's and he's hired. He's being paid. He's being paid. Um, this is a form of indentured servanthood, right? Yeah. This is not Greco-Roman slavery. This is your mortgage. <laughs> this is not Greco-Roman slavery. This is not uh, pre-1865 United States slavery, right? This is indentured servanthood. This is modern-day slavery. This is indentured <laughs> servanthood. A debtor is not considered a possession. He's a bound employee. That's, that's the idea here. Um, later Jewish tradition mandates that the debtor is to do no tasks that are humiliating, such as putting on the master's boots for him. See, I sometimes make my kids do that. I guess that's, that's just, I'm, I'm kidding. I don't. I'm joking. But a, a slave could not be made to do humiliating tasks. A further tradition in Israel also mandated that a slave was to do the task 
that was his original skill set. If he was a carpenter, he used to be a carpenter for the master. If he was a cook, he used to be a cook for the master. If he's a, that's just good use of, of uh, you don't, you don't, you don't make uh, yeah, you don't make the, the kitchen help uh, into your metal smithy, right? You just don't, that would be, that would be, uh, that would be a disaster. Um, they're not to be treated as permanent servants, but as hired resident alien workers who are contracted for a certain period of time. The law banished permanent servitude of one Israelite to another. Why would, it, why would God do this? Everybody else is doing it. Because we're made in the image of God. Because we're His servants. Because we're made in the image of God, because we're His servants, based on what in this passage do you see? It says we're his servants. It's not real complicated. I mean, it's very clear. I own my people. You can't own your... Here's how we can deal with debt. But when it comes down to it, Israel is mine. Um, for they are my servants. They're his permanent servants. Why? He's their redeemer out of Egypt. What is this whole don't treat them ruthlessly or harshly? Does that bring to mind anything? I mean, he's putting it in the context of Egypt. Chapter 1 in Exodus talks about how there grows up a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph from Genesis 50. Um, and he treated them harshly or ruthlessly. What's he saying by using, and I think he's intentionally using that term here. What's he saying by using it? There's two ways to do things, right? There's to be in conformity to the image of God and mirror who God is, His character that we saw in the Exodus. Or you could be like that punk Pharaoh, right? That, that's, the, that's the two options. There's no in-between. He's kind of ruthless. He's kind of not. No. You treat them as God would treat them. What would Yahweh do? <laughs> Pharaoh treated them harshly don't mirror him, mirror Yahweh it could also include, this harshly could also include don't extend their time for service beyond the agreed limit which was ju Jubilee and the only true and permanent master the Israelites have is Yahweh um, alright, can they own any permanent slaves? Yes. I believe it says foreigners foreigners does that bother you? Not if they built a wall. Oh my gosh. Well, <laughs> the church reflects the culture. Go ahead. Like they weren't to go out and take slaves is more in the context of slaves coming in. It's like people are sojourning, come to their land. There, they have a, there's a clan that's a foreign clan yeah. living in Israel. They never talked about them going out. And, and they trade them. You may buy... A male servant, you may buy a female servant from foreigners, foreign countries, resident aliens. Only from the surrounding nations or foreign nationals living among them. Um, any jubilee for these slaves? No. No. But is the tree different? That's a good question. The question is, is the treatment different? And here we come to the core issue here. The slavery we're talking about here is, again, it's not like the stuff we have in mind with roots, right? 
the, the, the question, am I not a man and a brother, is never really, it's just assumed the answer is yes in Israel. Um, even the foreign slaves that they bought, they were to treat well. They were not to treat them harshly. They could, as a slave in Israel, if the master abused them, we saw this earlier in Leviticus, if they lost an eye, they had their freedom. If they, be, if they got beaten, they, they gained their freedom. It was very costly under the law for a master to abuse a slave. If it came to light, that's going to happen. Uh, they were allowed to rest on Sabbath. They, they participated in all of those calendared rest years that we talked about, Jubilee, year of uh, the Sabbath year. All of this stuff is going on. Certainly more freedom than they would have as a slave in, say, Assyria. Um, but they don't get Jubilee. There's a potential here for them to be a slave the rest of their lives. Does that bother you? Does that just... Was there, so there's no jubilee for them. Was there no redemption? Ah, very good question. There is redemption for them. In fact, the, just because it says that they can be permanent slaves doesn't mandate that they are. There may not be a jubilee because they're not of Israel. They're not redeemed from Egypt. They're not his people. He provides jubilee to his people. But under the text of the surrounding cultures, there still was uh, the idea of redemption where somebody could buy them out, could purchase and redeem them. There's still the right of redemption is there. They could buy themselves out. I mean, these are people, these slaves are not like... Just, okay, I'm just going to, he provides me some soup at the end of the day. They're making money while they're doing it. They're, they're earning an income. If his hand reaches out and becomes prosperous, is the language that's being used, they could make money, and, and many of them did, and bought, them, bought themselves out, even the foreign slaves. All right. The law doesn't mandate that they serve for life, but that they may. Um, some texts... Uh, in the ancient Near East, uh, record where a master would adopt a servant in exchange for the servant taking care of the master until his death, at which point the servant was free. So you have that as an issue. Um, the statute here does not prevent the custom of redemption or, or of that. We've already seen that the chattel slavery or ethnic-based slavery is, is forbidden in Israel. The servants in Israel had legal rights. Uh, they went free if their masters abused them. They had the right to rest on Sabbath. Um, so why do you have the property language? In verses 44 through 46, it says, As for your male and female servants, whom, whom you, serve, slaves, slurvants, as for your male and female slaves, whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among strangers who sojourn with you in their seas and clans and bequeath them you can trade them, you can give them, you can buy them, you can give them to your descendants. Why the property language? Does that bother anybody? Doesn't that scream chattel slavery? Does it have to do with inheritance? Well, they're, they're able to inherit these, these slaves. Does that language offend you? Buy them. Buy a person? In the context of what we've just gone through, how you're supposed to treat them, how things are supposed to be done, that they can buy themselves out. No. <coughs> okay. The next time 
the Rangers trade another player to another team, we should march on Arlington. <laughs> when a manager at one Brookshire store gets transferred, like so much chattel, to another store, we should march, or at least boycott Brookshire's. This is the language of commerce. Just because I talk in terms of one catcher being traded from Detroit to the Rangers for a left-handed pitcher and whatever, just because we talk in those terms doesn't mean I equate that person with furniture, right? It's just a language of commerce. It's, it's using uh, language to describe what's actually going on, but it doesn't equate the person with less than being human. And I think sometimes we get so caught up in the, the PC jargon of our culture that we, I mean, we should probably pinpoint that to sports and to management and to other things. Does it mean then that there wasn't the potential for a master to abuse a slave in this situation? Is it completely unthought of that there would be an abusive situation here? No, of course it Anytime you have a relationship of power, there's the potential for abuse. In, in any relationship where that's the case, employer to employee, there's potential for abuse. Government to citizens, there's a potential for abuse. And sadly, parents child, right? Those relationship, uh, relationships based on power can have that, but, that but that's not the relationship itself that's evil. It's, it's us working it out with an evil heart. That's what's dehumanizing and abusive is, is how the relationship is exercised. So again, the Israelites did not have absolute rights over their servants. Slaves had rights and legal protections in Israel. And, and many have likened these relationships to kind of the paid cash employee kind of situation. We've seen that. Labor was exchanged for certain benefits, money, food, and shelter. And sometimes, as we saw before, those benefits were so great that they would agree to do it for life. They would do the, the, the all through the ear thing. They'd go to the nearest tattoo shop and get the piercing right here with the little ring there and then have the thing that says, I'm a slave to so-and-so master because the benefits are so great. You get the, okay. It's a doulos factor. You have the, okay. All right. For some people, servitude is actually a lifesaver. It doesn't mean that servitude was ideal. What's the ideal situation under the prophets? The ideal situation was each man under his own fig tree, each man under his own vine. But we live in a fallen world and stuff happens. And so this is a way to graciously allow people to get out of debt. Um, all right. And then you have at the very end, what if an Israelite became indebted to a resident alien? Does that change the parameters? No. The right of redemption, the right of jubilee, still follows with the Israelite, even though he may have a non-Israelite master. That stays the same. All right. <clears throat> what do you do with this? Yes? Today we're, we're still kind of in the same boat because, you know, we go to school and we have school debt. Mm -hmm. And we sure people do. work for somebody else yep. in, in debted servanthood. Mm-hmm. And you got to work out of that debt. Then you have a house, and you got to work out of that debt. And it's like until you pay off your mortgage, you're living in servants' quarters. Yes, and even though that's the the normal way that we do things, 
we don't view ourselves as slaves. We don't view it that way. On most days. On most days. You <laughs> pay your taxes. But Every April. This There's is, the abusive this relationship of power. Set up in, the, in the same light. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is a rich metaphor applied to Christ, isn't it? Our kinsman redeemer. Um, he redeems his people from the bondage of sin. Uh, the, the New Testament authors use this language an awful lot. Titus 2, 13 says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's some Christology for you. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And then again in Ephesians 1, 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So we have him redeeming his people from slavery. The first thing that a kinsman redeemer does. Second, we have him securing an eternal inheritance for his people in a land that is imperishable. First Peter 1, 3-4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept, for you, uh, kept in heaven for you. So we have... The, the redeeming us from slavery of sin. He has redeemed us to a land, giving us a land. And he's also the avenger on those who would oppress his church. You see this um, in, in 2 Thessalonians 1. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. You see all of those elements in Christ, the kinsman redeemer. He's redeemed us from the master that we had. Um sin and death and he's cut us loose and let us free we can do what we want that's, that's the point of where uh, Christian humility comes into play Okay. Because if we view ourselves as free we can do whatever we want because Christ bought us and we can just you know frolic on the meadows that's not true right we're, we're his slaves. We are slaves to righteousness. You don't, to you don't trade. Well, you do. You, you basically are trading one master for another. The slavery, but a much better master. And you see the picture of that here in this passage. What does it mean to be a slave of God in Israel? How much more a slave of Christ? Look at uh, Romans 6, and we'll finish on this. Romans 6, uh, verse 15. It answers that question. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Sure. Is that what it says? No. By no means! Exclamation point. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart 
to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Verse 20, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. That's permanent slavery. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's permanent slavery. <laughs> Um, this idea of slavery in Israel, I, I, it's a rich, um, a rich um, field to draw from in the New Testament. And I think we forget it. I think we forget many times that we're not our own, that we are bought with a price. And that doesn't release us to do whatever we want. It also means that we're free to do what from the heart we want, a new heart. And if we're in Christ, we have a heart that wants to please Him. We want to serve Him well. And how often do we say, oh, I'm just trapped in this. I can't get out of this. I can't. He's freed us. For freedom, Christ has set us free, it says. Do we live like that? Do we pray like that? Do we are we thankful in, in our daily devotion to the Lord as we read and pray? Thank you for making me free. Help me live. Help me to live as who I am in Jesus today. A slave of righteousness, not a slave of sin. Unfortunately, probably not very consistently. <laughs> but it's there. And we're growing in it. It's fruit that leads to sanctification that's continuing the process of making us look more and more like Him. Any questions, any comments? I know we're running along. No. All right, I'll pray. Father, I'm very conscious of the fact that every time I get up here and teach, I'm a hypocrite. And I say things that are ideal in realizing that in my own heart I have areas that I am not a slave to righteousness. Father, I thank you so much that you are a good and kind master. I pray that you would help us to long to look like Jesus more than look like Pharaoh. That you would... Uh, that you would help us uh, to long to treat our brothers as uh, not debtors to us, but as freed men in Christ. Lord, help us to shake off the shackles of our old man and remind us that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places, that we're already there 
adopted sons, no longer slaves. Jesus said, I no longer call you servants, but friends, because I tell you what I'm doing. We know what he's doing. He's redeeming a people for himself that reflect him. God, forgive us when we don't do that well. And give us hearts that long to do it and are um, zealous to put aside uh, the other nipping, yipping little masters that are at our heels that we so easily fall uh, under their control. Help us to put them aside and to focus our, our attention and our devotion only to Jesus and Him alone we pray. Amen.